0: Thanks, uh, Christian and Jim, for joining me today. For everybody listening, I want to introduce Christian Nagler. He's a partner at the law firm of Kirkland & Ellis in the Capital Markets Group, where he also spearheads the SPAC effort at k But I'm also joined by Jim Zukin, who has been on this podcast previously. And for, as a reminder, he is the Founder, CEO, and Chairman of Zukin Certification Services, which launched a new product in 2022, the Reasonable Basis Review, or RBR. Um, which provides a review of a target's financial projections as an additional layer of diligence by a third party in IPOs and M&A transactions. But for our purposes today, we're going to specifically focus on DSPAC transactions. So with that being said, you know, just to first set the table, Christian, maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of a primer on projections, you know, as how it relates to the various routes of companies going public and specifically the issues regarding the proposed new SPAC rule from the SEC.
1: Sure. Well, thanks for having me on. Christy. So on projections, one thing that when people thought about D-SPACs, they thought, wow, we have a system here where we're showing projections. And the way they came into public disclosure is one, pipe investors. So when you do a D-SPAC and you try to raise money ahead of signing a deal by getting pipe commitments, they were interested on the company's outlook on the business. So when we announced the deal, in order to as we call cleanse them so that they have the same, the public has the same info those pipe investors had, we made the projections public at the same time. The second way projections came in is because the quote Dspac transaction is in part an M and A transaction. The SEC effectively requires you when discussing the reasons for the merger to disclose the projections that the SPAC board took into account when it decided to uh, sign the merger agreement and propose the transactions to the shareholders. So that's the background for projections. I've had a fun time talking to Jim about this because I think when you read especially some of these academic publications, clearly the academics have feasted on uh, d transactions. There's a lot of noise around projections. And I think if you really step back and look at transactions across the board, in big events for companies, the case is we simply use projections. That's what are used by partly for valuation. So you look at a D-SPAC transaction. So I just described where it's included. If you look at a, a merger, a public company, merge with another public company, you often have projections there. there because what the board considered um, when it decided to purchase another company. So projections end up there. When you look at a company that's trying to emerge from chapter 11. So effectively, it's really a, it's kind of like an IPO coming out of chapter 11 because you're redoing your, almost always your capital structure the bankruptcy laws require that you have adequate information, which over time the courts have concluded to be a number of things, including financial projections. How is the business projected going forward? And then the other thing that this has brought to light the scrutiny of DSPAC transactions brought to light of what goes on in a regular way IPO. So, unlike a DSPAC transaction where everyone gets the projections, in a regular way, IPO, we all know from the Bloomberg articles that the projections are produced by analysts and only shared with certain accounts, certainly not appearing in the offering document. But if you look at all of this overall, and Jim's much more qualified to talk about projections, we know that in major transactions, companies are using projections
0: right so me and you have like talked about this before as well right like the the standard thing has always been like well traditional ipos don't use projections but they're allowed to right but maybe you can explain why they don't
1: so th- thanks for bringing that up but you sometimes hear where well, you can't have projections and ipos it's actually not the case there are some oil and gas deals have projections i've done ipos with projections long story how we ended up there but if you think about the um, MD&A of a company, and if you look at the SEC's rules, the SEC expects you to talk about liquidity going forward. It's really impossible to talk about liquidity going forward unless you can think about your business going forward. And at, we always had a section of SK, so it's part of effectively part of the securities laws, that basically said, hey, when you use projections, here are things to think about. So I think where this gets us to is if you look at the SEC's proposed rules, they actually talk about projections. They talk about the importance of projections. But of course, they stress that when you do projections, they need to be done on a reasonable basis.
0: And this is where Jim comes in.
1: <laughs> but I think logically that all makes sense. I think that's what practitioners were saying before the SEC's proposed rules came out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, before we go to get to Jim, I mean, I can tell you when a spec or DSPAC is announced, it's very challenging for us here at SPAC Insider to go through a deal. If they don't provide any sort of context or numbers for us to even you know, look at the transaction, like it, the projections are very helpful even if even if they are projected out to 27 or twenty twenty eight. I mean, it's just sort of like a starting point, right? Like nobody's actually really using it and holding their feet to the fire but it just sort of gives you some context on the company. Now, having said that, Jim, you came up with the reasonable basis review this year, this product. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how the product came about, because obviously it has a lot to do with what's been going on with the SEC, but maybe we can kind of start there. And then you can talk a little bit about how the reasonable basis review addresses what Christian just sort of brought up.
2: Thank you. And uh, it's great to be here as well. So at the beginning of the year, my partners and I, we got together and we said, SPACs seem to be at the crossroads. What services could we provide as third-party advisors that are not in the SPAC, milieu we're not uh sponsors we're not on the board et cetera. and what we saw were there were two areas one being readiness and the other being projections and so we went about putting together a third party service that addressed these and as we were putting it together we understood that the spac projection rules the title of the sec rules actually are projection rules mentioned projections A couple of hundred times is that Mm -hmm. they were coming out with something very special from our point of view and what it did was it had a specific standard as i will call it and that is a reasonable basis review and they then expanded on that said it should only be at most two years but that there was flexibility as to the level of detail but What they said was, and I have a little quote here, projections must have a reasonable basis. Management's good faith assessment of future financial performance must have a reasonable basis. An outside review of management's projections may furnish additional support for having a reasonable basis for a projection. That was buried in page 324. I think Mm -hmm. most people who were reading the proposed rules didn't get that far because that was a centerpiece of what was in these rules, or at least we thought so. So we set about creating a service that we call cleverly the reasonable basis review or RBR, and providing a report that would be filed in an S4 that would accompany the projections themselves. In a filing, there are three choices. Don't put in any projections, put in projections and leave it at that, or put in the projections with the RBR. Now, I had a week when I had nothing better to do. And so I read through all 120 live deal investor presentations two weeks ago. And what I found was that of them, 66 have no projections. That of the 54 that have projections, 29 of them have what appeared to be a meaningful historical basis to trend from. And so I really do have a question, which is, if you don't have a reasonable, you know, a meaningful historical basis, why would you put the projections in? Uh, Because they may raise more questions. But let's go back to those investor presentations that I read. It looked like they all used the same template. As a matter of fact, it looked like the same group prepared all of them. Uh, they, they are, may have <laughs> you know, right? But when they have projections, they have exactly one page, they might have two pages on the projections. So, recently, in Legato 2, who did a major, terrific deal with uh, Southland Holdings, they hired us and they put the RBR report into their filing. So, it is a 16 page classic serious research report. And when when the feedback started coming back to us, the feedback was, oh, we understand there is a purpose for the service because it's right there in the proposed rules. But there is another very important purpose. And that is, this is great securities research that people in the SPAC world are starving for more information placement agents are looking for information that they can provide. And so it's firepower for the placement agents and for the public shareholders, all of a sudden they get something beyond this very salesy investor presentation. They get the projections, they see them put into context, but then they also get a detailed industry overview and this, of course, fundamental financial analysis. So taken together, it's a value-added service.
0: It's a shame it's like all the way in the back of the proxy because I did take a look at it. Um, I almost feel like it should be more front and center. I, I I hope people who are listening do understand that it is in the back of the proxy for look at too if you want to take a look at it. Um, no, but so Christian, kind of going back to you, though, you may not know this yet, but you, obviously you do talk to the SEC quite a bit, the reviewers over there. I, have you heard any feedback as far as uh, reception to the RBR or anything along those lines?
1: I, I haven't heard re- reception to the RBR. I imagine the SEC would say that's this is consistent with what we're talking about. Um, one thing, Christy, I already failed to do on this is you asked me to describe why we don't see projections in IPOs. And the real reason is because clearly the banks who are underwriting an IPO, meaning they are buying the shares and then selling the shares, I think it's well understood that they're viewed as underwriters and underwriters in an IPO have liability. So banks typically are pretty conservative on these matters. So they are hesitant to include forward-looking information. When they proposed rules came out, there was sort of a tsunami because the SEC jumped around a lot of things. And the two things they did to add to all of this, because if you look at the comment letters, they're actually, they look at the ABA one, the, the comment letters are somewhat supportive of the SEC's thoughts on projections. It, it, a lot of it makes sense. But then when you put it together with their views on, oh, we're going to take away the forward-looking statement safe harbor, that's a w- number one thing they did. First of all, it didn't apply in a lot of our deals because they really are making a lot of noise out of this, but it didn't apply in many of the deals where you have a structure where the target company, which is a terrible name for this, but with an operating company, probably a better name, is the surviving entity on top and files a registration statement. It didn't have the forward-looking statement safe harbor. Nobody advised people, we'll structure it this way to get the forward-looking statement safe harbor, because we were always, we had a foundation in the case law, the bespeaks caution doctrine, which is if you put out forward-looking information and you put out all the things that can go wrong, what your assumptions are, and healthy disclosure, then you should be okay with or without the disclaimer, the the protection from the forward-looking statements. That was one. The second thing they did was they came out and said, well, maybe it's the case. And again, this is more dicta. They said... Maybe it's the case that anyone involved in one of these DSPAC transactions is somehow an underwriter. They didn't propose a rule that said that. Their rule is only if you are an underwriter on the front end and involved in the back end, DSPAC. But they had very, very broad language, which I think many law firms. And many securities groups like the ABA, they politely differed with that uh, in case law interpretation that all of a sudden any financial institution involved where there's a distribution of securities is somehow an underwriter. But with all of that, the banks looked at it and said, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to take a pause here because clearly plaintiff's counsel is now going to just start quoting the SEC's general comments on this. And so now that's why in some de uh, we aren't seeing projections.
0: Right. But here's what uh, always sort of confused me. Right now, SPACs are, or even before this whole issue, last year, the year before, there was the safe harbor. There wasn't this issue. And yet, SPACs were still getting civil litigation, right? So, what was it really protecting them from?
1: Uh, the the safe harbor, no, that's a great point. I'm not. So, and many times the safe harbor wasn't even available. The, well, you're going to have plaintiff's counsel sue on things when things don't turn out. But I just want to note that a lot of the D-SPAC companies that are trading at below ten, you know, some of them have hit their projections and are trading down. For instance, one of the big litigations is Multiplan. Multiplan basically hit their projections. So I think even if you hit your projections, you could end up with suits like that. Just one other thing I want to throw in here about how we, as a community, and it's not the SPAC community, I would say the securities ecosystem, which includes Delaware courts, look at this. There has been a Delaware case where a judge enjoined a merger. It was Vice Chancellor Strine because there weren't projections in there. And his quote is, projections of this sort are probably among the most highly prized disclosures disclosures by investors. And he points out investors can come up with many of their own estimates but they can't replicate what management's view is of a company's prospects. Uh,
0: So damned if you do, damned if you don't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I will admit, uh, Christy, when I delved to take valuation at the business school when I was in law school on the DCF, which really Jim should be talking about, not me, I did always struggle with how to project revenues out. The other stuff I could figure out, but that was always a tough one. You really need management's input on that.
2: (laughs) Well, uh, you certainly do. Many years ago, the IRS put out a revenue ruling that said valuation is a prophecy of the future based on the facts at hand. And so I want to go to a deeper dive from projections. That dive is into the assumptions. The work that we do is all about the assumptions. When we talk about reasonable basis in terms of the work and the conclusions that we provide, our specific conclusions say specifically, and I'm giving you the words now, the assumptions used, taken as a whole, provide reasonable support for the projections. Separately, we state that there is a reasonable basis for the projections. So this is double-barreled. By the way, in between those two, of course, is you need to have a and consider the preparers of the projections informed judgment. That is what our conclusions are all about. And the majority of our work is in vetting assumption and in a thoroughgoing manner, and then taking that information and putting it in the report so that it is usable. So our goal is to provide very important information as opposed to a check the box. A fairness opinion, for instance, a quote, complimentary service is basically all legal disclaimers. And then it says it's fair from a financial point of view. Ours is legal disclaimers, but then goes into 12 to 20 pages of fulsome analysis so that it is an investor document. And so I just want to have people focus on the fact that it is all about the assumptions.
0: So when the new SEC SPAC rule proposal finally does come out, how how does that change the current landscape?
1: So on the issue of projections, I'm not sure it does change the current landscape because if you, like I said before, a lot of the comment letters were really touching on the edges of what the proposed disclosures were or or framework for projections. Really, none of the practitioners had a huge issue with the SEC suggesting that um, we really need to tighten up the assumptions and have a reasonable basis for them. So once the rules are adopted on projections, That alone won't, I don't think, change what's going on in the market. I think what what changes what's going on in the market is maybe banks start getting more comfortable when there is a third party review of the projections and assumptions that Jim was talking about, because then there's diligence um, on that that the banks can show if they were to be held liable. It is also possible, I'm not sure this changes anything, but there is a current case out there where the plaintiff said, hey, the banks involved here in the d spec are all underwriters. And clearly taking from the SEC's commentary, again, I don't think I'm saying anything shocking, but many practitioners, many comment letters that went in really disputed the fact that the concept of any bank somehow is an underwriter and if that case comes out a certain way confirming what a lot of people think it could be that the banks come back and say okay now that we can't be tagged with underwriter liability we certainly are focused on projections and diligence and it's our it is our reputation but that could be one of the things that changes on projections going forward the other thing we should probably discuss on projections i think This started a little bit with then director John Coates wrote a piece that I think people really struggle to understand, but he did come out and say projections clearly are important and projections may be required in some situations, like when I mentioned the case where the judge said you have to put the projections in. But we should probably talk about, which goes into assumptions a little bit, how far out projections go. Because I think in many transactions, DSPAC transactions that were very successful, the projections only went out a year or maybe two years or three years. I think once we started seeing more of a move to more venture capital type of transactions where the companies weren't as established and the deal makers felt like they had to show a much longer period of projections I think showing up longer projections much further out when the business really wasn't developed yet, to me, and and speaking to the SEC, it seems like, which I understand, they were probably much more concerned about the seven, eight year projections than they were on two to three year projections.
2: Because there is a real problem when you start going out a long way, particularly for a very exciting company, and it's called Compound. Optimism. And in particular, where you have a new molecule or you have a new invention, you've got a new rocket ship, a new EV battery, et cetera. How are you going to project the market for that? And on many of the new technologies, they actually morph. And so it isn't even the market you think, but what it might turn into. It is very hard on how we look. We are conservative at a reasonable basis to take projections out a long period of time unless you have confidence that you can take the industry out. We have a little rule, and that is that a company's projections can never be larger than the industry they are in. And believe it or not, in tech, people violate that rule all the time. (laughs) Shocking. (laughs) And so from our comfort point of view, again, back to this reasonable basis. We think two years, which is a 23-24, and of course you have very much a little tail of 22, generally makes a lot of sense. We have one case where it is only for 23, and we have another one where they're talking about doing 25. Now, back to something that Christian raised earlier, is that in fact, in one case, we've been hired by the bank. Because they're looking for it, because it provides additional financial due diligence for them. Very prominent fairness opinion providers have come to us and have told us that they really want to see the RBR report because it is a compliment, to be honest. I think they also might view it as something of a risk reducer for them. And then the DNO insurers, they, on several occasions in conversations, have told us how supportive. Of it, they are. And they're supportive of it because it is a risk mitigator. Automatically, there is a screen of people that either have no projections or have projections without a historical basis. So it's a screen. And then there is the RBR itself. So I wanted to just share with you those few points.
1: So I understand your view in reviewing projections that go very far out. But what does a company do? when it has a business concept and the next two years as it slowly ramps up production, those next two years really are not, whatever projections you have, are not going to be reflective of what management thinks and for investors to have to think about the business. So I think there are certain companies, aren't there, where you have to go out five, six, seven years in order to tell your story.
2: There absolutely are. I'm dealing with one right now. And we have not gotten to this point, but what we have suggested to them is that we prepare, of course, they prepare uh, a forecast for the market. And so they are saying, here is what we are developing. We are developing sliced bread. And now we're going to talk about the sliced bread market. But we have no idea what market share we might get into it. So when I talk about assumptions, an assumption that hangs me up is market share out five years. And so because there is total flexibility of what you want to share with the public, you actually can share a market analysis that may well be of a market that does not exist today because of the breakthrough nature of, say, the technology. Now, in the event that it is the classic molecule, then they have a monopoly on the molecule. So then they would have 100% of the market for that drug by definition. You would not have this issue. We are, on a case-by-case basis, prepared to address this. But Christian, to throw it back to you, it's those lawyers that are the problem (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> They're the ones who are saying, oh, no, we can't go out more than two years.
1: I, I understand lawyers are causing problems, but I don't think ne- it's necessarily unreasonable for companies in certain industries and at and at certain junctures in their development to go out further than two years. I don't think it's unreasonable necessarily to go out five to seven years. I obviously, agree. Obviously, I, agree. But I just want to be clear to all of our listeners that that is not an unreasonable approach for certain companies at all. It's not not at all unreasonable. I
2: could not agree more. We are looking right now at a company that is projecting no revenues for three years because they are building a gigafactory and they already have orders and LOIs out in year four. And this is a great big project, hundreds of millions of dollars. And absolutely, those projections make sense.
0: And by the way, I would like to remind, I would like to remind listeners, Tesla, when it ipo would in June 2010, proceeded to miss 20, 20 instances of guidance in a row <laughs> after that. In fact, didn't even become profitable until 2021, right, which was 11 years later, right? And that is because it, it created its own brand new category. There never really had been an electric car category before.
2: Years ago, I signed off on the projections of Global Crossing, when they had laid the first mile of fiber. And yet being a business that was actually selling the use of that fiber for across uh, Pacific, cross Atlantic phone calls was years off. So it does go back to facts and circumstances.
0: So actually, so Jim, let me sort of follow up on that. Um, Obviously, you're working with both banks and sponsor teams. How are they differing in their concerns? Because I imagine both parties, they're both working towards the same goal. But um, I'm sure the concerns bankers have is going to be a little bit different than the sponsor teams.
2: The bankers are great. They're basically all on board. The sponsors actually, for the most part, really like the service. Sponsors have a working capital issue, particularly today, where everything about de-spacking is more expensive, takes longer. And so, They have a real cost issue. I would say that's the biggest problem that we are addressing. In fact, one of the insurance companies, Banyan, actually came out uh, with a policy where if the SPAC gets the RBR from us, they're covering 100% of the cost of the RBR because that is something that they think is so important that the sponsor thinks it's so important, but the sponsor just does not have the money for it. That's the biggest issue we face. It is our sense, and again, I've not had the opportunity to talk with the SEC about this, but it is our sense that if you provide an RBR report that really does address the projections in the manner that I'm describing, that it can give a level of confidence to the SEC as to the quality of that deal. Also, because of the fact that they put out these SPAC projection rules, and for the most part, people have ignored the RBR part of it. And so maybe when an RBR comes in, they go, oh, there's an RBR. Let's go take a look at that. I know that from the time that the RBR and RBR that we did that, that was filed, the comments on it came back from the SEC in four weeks. Now, I think that's probably really fast when you consider that they had a 150, 120 live deals. So not based on any information, but we have a sense that you can move faster through the process and maybe with a higher level of certainty of being able to move through it because of the fundamental concern of protecting investors and getting them the full disclosure of information. Let's go back to what Christian said at the beginning of the, of the interview. It really does relate to what is provided and when. And so if there is confidence that it is a quality deal, then presumably that will pass muster and the probability of moving out in a timely fashion could increase, but I don't know.
0: Well, I am going to pressure test both of you with one other case because it just occurred to me. Um, Obviously, the macroeconomic climate, right, has changed drastically this year and um, things are pretty challenging right now for everybody, not just specs. And so, you know, a lot of these deals, that we're seeing trying to come to a completion vote right now, you know, were struck six months ago. And maybe they had projections based on a different macro backdrop at that time. What are your concerns, Christian, as a lawyer? And B, Jim, for you, for the reasonable basis, is there any sort of issues on that end, where do you then recommend that a team or a bank go back and, you know, revisit them if the conditions have changed, you know, dramatically, such as they have?
1: Christy, thanks for raising that, because that has been a topic of a lot of discussion. First, when the projections go in, there is a lot of disclosure around them. And this is not new to SPACs. This has been historical of these are the projections at the time. They speak as of the time. And they were historically included for far different reasons. They were included because you had to cleanse the pipe investors. They were included because you need to know what the board looked at. But the Delaware law, they're looking at what, what did the board have at the time it made its decision? It's not the case that the, the, what it is that the board had, that, that the board constantly has to be rethinking the deal. The whole purpose of the M&A agreement is that you're, you've signed it and you're bound to it. And yes, there are, even though it's very hard standard, if there's a material adverse change, we have that language. But that is a hurdle in Delaware. Just because you're not hitting your projections doesn't mean a company can get out of its merger agreement. So'
0: yeah, a la, a la Elon Musk, right and
1: Twitter. So, so I'm happy you raised that issue because we are seeing in comment letters, this is all public from the SEC saying, well, you know, are your projections still valid? And things like that. And there I think a lot of thought needs to go into that because yes, at the time they were produced, they were seemed to be valid. In, in terms of your macroeconomic backdrop, there's situations where companies can hit all their projections, but guess what? The stock is trading down because all the comps are trading down. Even though the comps hit their forecast, they're just simply trading down. So there is there are a lot of pieces to this. I think Jim and I want to go away with the reason we're passionate about this is because the SEC didn't say. That you can't have projections. The SEC said they need to be done on a reasonable basis. I think we all thought that to begin with. The noise around projections, I think, is coming from people writing articles, both in academia and in the press, and the headlines are projections are bad, blah, 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 blah. You can't use projections. And that's simply not the case. And our point is that's not what the SEC, in our view, is saying. We think they're saying you can certainly want you to use projections. They just have to obviously be reasonable.
2: I'd like to address the macroeconomic view. Well, first of all, we have an RBR that we're just finishing up now where, in fact, the projections are being updated because of the fact that they were done almost four months ago and they are actually stale. We have just received the new projections. They are up. (laughs) So do not assume that they will be down. And the reason they are up is because this particular company, conservative company, projects off a backlog and backlog significantly increased. But I wanted to step back and say that half of all the RBRs here at ZCS are with non-U.S. targets. And in the non-U.S. targets, in one particular case, we actually provided two macroeconomic overviews for the country because when you go and you research that country you find there are two distinct views it is the recession yes recession no and that it's a split in terms of the economists and whatnot and so what we did simply was that in the review we presented both of, if you will those cases and in, of course, the no recession case, the projections were well met. But even in the projection case, the assumptions themselves were reasonable.
0: Well, I think this has been a, a fun conversation, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> and uh, I want to thank you both for joining me today. And uh, you know, maybe we can get, a get, get together again um, in a couple of months just to see what has changed and um, Maybe we'll have some additional things to talk about once the SEC puts out their final rule proposal too and see how that changes things as well.
1: That'd be great. great. Thanks, Christy.